Hello, I'm Phil Svitek, 360 Creative Coach, and welcome to my vlog, where it is both my mission and my pleasure to highlight my creative journey in hopes of inspiring you, giving you specific takeaway. All that way, your journey can be at least a little bit easier. Now, before I fully dive into things, I would love to take the opportunity to invite you to subscribe if you haven't already. That way you get all the various lessons and episodes that I put out right when I put them out. Thank you if you just did, and thank you if you already were. It truly does mean a lot to me, as I hope it does to you. So let's dive in. Uh, creatively speaking, uh, two big uh, things that um, have been progressing forward is the second draft of a script that I've been working on for an animated feature film. It's a fantasy. And then also uh, the my second nonfiction book, which is a essentially a filmmaking how-to book in the vein of A Rebel Without a Crew uh, by Rob Rodriguez, where that book chronicles his making of El Mariachi, his first film. And this essentially chronicles mine, right? But even though it's kind of half a diary, let's say, it really is more of like a instructional guide of going after, you know, what you would love in terms of filmmaking, you know, and not letting limitations hold you back and figuring out ways to overcome any of those challenges, right? So that's really the goal, you know. <clears throat> and Rebel Without a Crew is very seminal for many, many filmmakers, right? Like it's on so many must-read lists of any filmmaker, any film class and things of that nature. So, but let's, uh, let's rewind. Let's Start at the top. Let's let's start with the script itself uh, for the feature film that I'm working on now. So, you know, as has been tradition, certainly in talking about these vlogs, it's it's a case of two steps forward, one step back. Uh, I'm about like 65 pages in, uh, which in terms of page count isn't that much progress, but. Uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to measure the the work that goes into it, right? You know, I talked about, for me, one big important tool that I've added now is kind of the beat sheet where I've laid out, you know, various things um, in terms of, it, it, it's almost like a glorified outline plus a timeline, but the benefit is it includes backstory, includes things that happen off screen, uh, things of that nature, and it's done in a chronological order so I can really track it and know, okay, from a macro standpoint, where are we at in the story? What is a scene really about? And so that's been helping me and by utilizing that, I can kind of see, okay, you know, how do I want to finesse this to make it stronger and stuff like that. And, you know, one of, uh, I always love, there's this quote in The Matrix Revisited, which is essentially a two-hour documentary made by the studio, of course, but um, about the making of the, excuse me, making of the first Matrix. And in it, uh, Keanu Reeves is talking about the Wachowskis and he's, he's like, you know, the Wachowskis are always looking at something through the the lens and like, what does it look like from here? What does it look like from here? And for me, it's very much been a process like that. 
you know, I'm getting to the part of the script that is deviating greatly, you know, more and more so because we want to enhance it from the first draft, right? So it's no longer just kind of tweaking things. It's, you know, adding in new scenes, um, making wholesale changes type of thing. I mean, it's not like, you know, everything's different, but I would say like maybe like 50, 60% of it is starting to change. You know, the core idea is there, sure. Um, and, you know, like if a scene takes place in a tunnel, then the scene's still going to take place in a tunnel. It's just how it happens and what happens. That's the thing that's changing. And so a lot of times, you know, I'll just start with writing the particular scene, understanding that there is no such thing as writer's block. It's really just... Um, a writer's perfection or a fear thereof it, right? So knowing that like if I tackle a scene initially, it's it's probably going to be bad, right? But at least that allows me to be like, okay, well, what's bad about it? What's good about it? And how do we change that up? How do we like re-examine it? How can we do X, Y, and Z? And, you know, it's led to some good breakthroughs. You know, a couple scenes in particular that you know, aren't perfect even now, but through this process, you know, I'm chipping away, so to speak, um, you know, at the stone to, to sculpt the statue and it's looking a lot better. You know, there's, there's conflict. We're tying in any exposition as part of that. You know, you're starting to understand who the characters are through this conflict and what their motives are. So, you know, it's it's um, much improved in that way. Again, not necessarily perfect, but we'll get there. Um, and part of the perfection is, you know, just even in the form of writing, right? Um, even like what happens may be like, okay, like let's say this is what it's going to be. You know, here's the overall dialogue, you know, beat by beat. Here's the overall actions, you know, perf- that, that next level of perfection not saying this this is the phase I'm at, but it could literally just be revising the prose to read a little bit sharper, faster, stronger, and the dialogue to be a little bit more snappier, you know, and things of that nature. So, yeah, you know, it's all just progress, forward momentum, and just doing what you can. And, you know, I mentioned that in, in the last vlog that that John Comerford, one of my writing partners on this, you know, he's going to take a stab at a few scenes. And so he like essentially rewrote the opening to be a little bit sharper in that way. And overall, there's things that I agree with um, and things that I changed um, just slightly, but overall stick like 90%, you know, for this new draft, I'm going to stick with his version because I want to see, you know, how it, how, how it feels, how it reads, um, knowing that, like, I can always add some of the stuff. And the, the stuff that got lost was some um, superfluous dialogue, if you will, um, that kind of gave some insights into the world, the mentality and stuff like that. Um, and, I, you know, again, that's all stuff that, if needed, could be added back in. But, you know, his is a lot sharper and you know just faster right essentially so and he's going to take a uh, two more scenes and see what he can do with them 
So we'll see, you know, like I said, I mean, um, it's an examination. It's an exploration of, you know, what does it look like from here? What does it look like from here? And seeing, you know, what fits and what doesn't, uh, you know, what if we tried this? What if we took away this, right? Like that's literally this, this phase of it. And, you know, as perhaps you hear me talk about it week in, week out, might not sound like much, right? I get that. You know, the act of writing is not glamorous. The, the glamour is once it's finished and, you know, even then it's like, okay, you still have to go make the movie, right? And then the only, like, the, the crowning achievement is being able to finally see the movie on screen, right? And then people are like, oh my God, you know, I, I would love to do that. Like, that, that's when people, like, envy you. And it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, the, the, the real act of it all is in the boring parts, right? That, 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 uh, so it's not glamorous. It's uh, quite arduous, in fact, you know? But my point about all of this is, as repetitive as this may sound, as far as a vlog is concerned, you know, this is where I'm getting to test out those ideas and get it to a place where it soars while not spending money, right? I mean, yes, it costs me, of course, my time uh, and, and things of that nature, but it's, if anything, it's certainly far, far, far cheaper to iterate here versus, you know, once you have actors involved and you're filming and being like, okay, now we need to do a rewrite. Let's try this. Like that's when, you know, even in the best circumstances, let's say it's just you and a group of friends that just want to make a movie, right? Even then um, you're kind of wasting some precious time, right? And it's not to say that like once you're on set, you can't iterate and things won't change. Of course. I mean, when you're filming, things will evolve and, and, then in post-production, of course, that's the like the third rewrite, as they say. But, you know, those ideas, the, the, those that, that magic happens because that script is as good as it could have been, um, you know, in, the, in those moments. And then people are able to take certain threads and enhance what's there as opposed to essentially propping it up, right? So that's how I would differentiate it. And so here... It really is like, let's make the script as good as it can be. And that way, once we're filming and further and later on down the line, you know, in editing, we can really um, enhance what's there and elevate it to a new level previously unseen because we're hitting magic as opposed to, okay, this is not working. How do we, how do we fix it? Right? So that's what's happening, you know? And I, I say time and time again, all I can control at this moment is putting in the effort, right? So just because there's not necessarily a lot of page output doesn't mean effort's not being put in. Um, and I am writing, you know, and, but oftentimes, as I said, you know, two steps forward, one step back type of thing. I'm constantly like going back and forth. And, you know, some people would say, just get it down on page and rewrite later. But for me, because I already have the first draft and, you know, this is very much what comes later hinges on things that happened earlier. I mean, all movies do, of course, but 
you know, for me with this one, I'm threading the needle the, the tightest that I've ever had to. And so I need those to be more vivid in order to pull off the ending in a satisfying way. And so that's why this is important to me to not just barrel forward, but to really kind of get it to a place where I feel confident. Because as I said, I have the first draft and that was the one that it was like, all right, let's just get it down on paper. Let's, let's he, hear who these characters are. Let's see what their actions are. We'll be able to assess yeah, what's working and what's not based on that. So that was that phase of it, right? And that was a very beneficial phase. Now we're onto a new stage. So that's important. So that's kind of where we're at with the movie, so to speak. As far as the nonfiction book, you know, it's really just a matter of essentially checking in every now and then um, and reading drafts of, of chapters, you know, it, it, it's not one that requires too much involvement from me for the simple fact that uh, it's being ghostwritten by somebody else based on uh, dictations, uh, speech-to-text dictations of each chapter, right? So, you know, it captures my voice, it captures, you know, everything I want to say overall, but the ghostwriter is putting that into a cohesive clear form that others could enjoy, right? And so for me, it's just kind of checking in at the, at the stage of each chapter to be like, okay, you know, are we, are we in the right direction, you know? Um, and yeah, for the most part, we are, right? Um, that's not a knock. That's just, you know, how the writing process goes for everything. But for the most part, unless it's like a glaring thing that like switches tonality or something like that, which, which it hasn't, which is good. Um, that's why I like this ghostwriter. Like, you know, we really meshed um, throughout the interview process and, um, you know, got each other and have various sensibilities, you know, and whatnot. So... Yeah, right now it's just about getting that draft done, getting a full first draft of this book done so we can do essentially what I'm doing with the script, and that's to revise it, you know. Now, unlike with this movie script, the nonfiction book itself has a much clearer roadmap, and it's much easier to judge the success of each chapter, if you will, by is it communicating what it needs to communicate and so forth. So I think really, if anything, the, the, the rewrite part of it will be more about grammar and, and finessing certain information here and there, but it's not, I don't know, I, 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 just, I could be proven wrong completely, but... Um, based on my experience with writing my first nonfiction book, um, it's a process and it takes a while, sure, but you're more focused on 
as I said, the minutia um, of it all, you know, getting from good to great, rather than whole like, okay, you know, this, this chapter needs to be moved here, we need a whole rewrite here. It's less about that and more about, okay, now what's key information? Can we create a, a graphic for that? Um, do we put it in bold? Like, you know, things of that nature. It's, it's more formatting grammar style and yada, yada, yada. But we'll see, you know, it's, it's always an adventure. You know, I will admit uh, this book is a little bit different from my first nonfiction, right? My first nonfiction, Master Mental Fortitude, is 35 lessons. Um, and so in that sense, each lesson is a standalone, really. And the way it's structured is very much like, here's the lesson, here's how it applies to you, and here's a creative exercise. So in and of itself, there are big differences between this one and my first book, um, or my first nonfiction book. But there, but, but it's no different in that way where when I made my first movie, uh, Love Market, which is available on Amazon if you'd like to, um, or watch it on Tubi for free. But anyway, uh, you know, that one was, okay, how do I just essentially make a feature film? Can I make a feature film? So, you know, I utilized various techniques to simplify it for myself while still putting out the best product, um, best story I could. And so, you know, with Master Mental Fortitude, that nonfiction book, it was very much about that, right? Then once I, with you know, in, in terms of filmmaking, was like, okay, I've made a feature film. Now, how do I challenge myself for a second one? Like, how can I you know, go all out. And that was, his, now, it wasn't just like double, it was like an exponential growth from the first to the second. So with my second feature film, Bogota Trip, we went down to Colombia. you know, narratively, I challenged myself, filmmaking, I challenged myself. So it was, you know, it, it was a much greater challenge. But myself and everyone else rose to the occasion and delivered an amazing movie, you know? And so same thing with this, you know, you take this stuff from the first go around. So meaning the Master Mental Fortitude book, you know, I've learned how that process went and now know how to not shortcut, but I know how to avoid certain pitfalls. I know how the process works. But instead of just repeating it, it's like, let's, let's elevate it. Let's take it to another level and let's challenge myself in terms of writing a nonfiction book. So that's my approach to, to that, right? All right. So creatively, that's kind of, you know, what's been happening. There's a few things that have been sort of sidelined simply because I'm prioritizing these things. So the things that are sidelined is there's been a short film that I filmed a while ago, um, have partially edited, but um, yeah, wouldn't necessarily require too much time. But as I said, you know, you, you got to ultimately kind of pick and choose. And so the short film's kind of been on the back burner. Um, I've been trying to talk with some of my friends that are filmmakers 
and see, you know, hey, is this something like you'd like to take on? You know, I'll give you, you know, we could figure out payment and stuff like that. It wouldn't necessarily be your rate, but, you know, uh, it would also wouldn't like undercut you that much, you know, and, and figure out like, okay, let's, let's get this done. So um, that'd be nice, you know, so kind of perhaps working on that in, in, in this way to, to keep it moving. But even if that doesn't work out, you know, I know I'll get to it eventually. Um, but in, for me right now, this, this script is like my main priority, you know, just getting it to a place where it's, it's good and polished and, you know, we can have a table read it, you know, I can send it out to certain people to see if they're interested, things of that nature, right? Um, that's really my goal. And then I can focus on some of this other stuff that's been back burner. Another thing that I've been putting off is writing my uh, second novel. Partly, you know, I've talked about this a while ago, partly because it deals with AI, which isn't the primary thing, but it's in the background of it all. And, you know, I'm still kind of, before it used to be like science fiction, now in a way it's like reality. And certainly it extracts AI to its kind of theoretical version. So, you know, there's still a sci-fi element to it, but it's now a lot more real than when I initially had the idea years and years ago. So, you know, that could be my own laziness and procrastination, but I think, you know, rather than look at it like that, give myself some grace and say, no, I'm focused on this film script right now. And in the meantime, I'm just kind of processing, absorbing information and learning about AI and, you know, the pros and cons and seeing the various perspectives from other people, you know, both that are so-called experts in the field and then just people that haven't even touched it, right? And, and these various perspectives and how does that shape my story? So, you know, that's another thing I'm excited to get to um, eventually. And then one of the things, you know, I would love to do at some point is kind of like an extended sizzle. I don't know. There's not really a term necessarily that I have for it, but essentially take all of my creative work and create like a 10 minute documentary of how I essentially got here. And I have obviously the various footage. I even have some people talking about me and, um, and whatnot. But the thing that makes it tough is I don't think it's necessarily one that I should make. Like, you know, um, obviously it's something that's geared to not necessarily promote me, but obviously showcase who I am and what I've done. But there's something about it where I would love, even though it's serving a very self-centered purpose, let's say, all the same, I would love to have some perspective and have somebody else take a stab at it, you know, instead of me editing it. But yeah, that's kind of been the other aspect. Um, and then just other things, you know, I would love to do kind of a bit of an update on the website. 
you know, philsweettech.com. I would love to do an update on my Patreon page, patreon.com slash philsweettech. Um, but all in good time, you know. I think, uh, as I said, we all have to navigate these various priorities and see how they fit within the larger scope of things. Um, so shifting gears completely away from any creative aspects. Um, you know, one thing this past week, at the start of the week, I saw the LA animal shelters posting on social media. And I saw this through a friend who had reposted it, but that because of the, the holiday weekend, AKA the 4th of July weekend, shelters get overcrowded. And so having people foster animals helps them to, you know, not have to put down dogs or, you know, sadly, hopefully not as many, right? Uh, just the, the harsh reality of it all. So for me, I was like, okay, I love dogs. You know, I know I can't, I'm not in a place to be able to adopt one necessarily, but I can foster and I can do, you know, what, what I can, right? And so I went in and if you follow me on social media at Phil Svitek, you might've seen, um, it's this two-ish year old German shepherd named Diamond. Um, so she was the one that was essentially assigned to, um, with like county shelters. I don't know if this is true. I mean, I imagine it's pretty true everywhere, but, um, you know, they have to be very careful with the foster, with, with the dogs that, <clears throat> excuse me, that they allow you to foster because they're technically still property of the county. And so if anything happens, they're liable for it. Um, unlike, let's say if you were a rescue organization, they might let you take a more, or let's say problematic dog or something like that. So, um, you know, but in that way, all that to say diamond really salt of the earth, sweet as can be. And we just had, you know, a fun time together, but you know, she is still just my foster. The, the tough part is when people say, you know, just ad adopt her already. And it's like, I don't need more guilt in that way. Like there's nothing more that I would love than to adopt a dog, to adopt her but it's just not in the cards, not right now. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not invested in our well-being. So I am trying to find her the, the best place, you know, um, so that way she can have the life she deserves, right? Um, so I, I've, I've been kind of working on, on doing that while, you know, and while she's with me, doing what we can, right? So we've been on hikes, we've been to the dog park, we've been to the beach, um, and just giving her a good time. So, and the reason, you know, beyond just the shelters being excited because obviously by people fostering dogs, it means they can take in more dogs, which is a weird cycle, of course, but, um, you know, not, not their fault, but all the same, by fostering a dog, it essentially acclimates them, right? It, it makes them even more adoptable than they already were. Um, it gives them a routine. 
you know, there's training involved, right? Obviously, like even if you're not actively like quote unquote training them, just the act of them living with people um, is setting them up to be more socialized, be more adaptable, right? Um, and so, for example, with her, she didn't know stairs. And so now she's learned to go up and down stairs, not fear stairs. Um, at the beach, she was frightened of the ocean and wouldn't go near it. And I didn't make her, but, you know, in time, maybe, uh, maybe she will. Not that that's a requirement. Um, she's great in a car, but going in and out, you know, she was scared. Now I think less so, right? She's getting better at it. So, you know, it's all these things that add up to then make, you know, whoever, whoever does adopt them, like their life is at least a little bit easier in that way because the dog is broken in, acclimated, less timid, um, all these things. You know, and, and it is tough, you know, like I've had friends say to me like, you know, oh, they, it, it's just tough for them, like, the, you know, even fostering because they want to keep the dog or like they don't think they could give it back. Um, and I get that it's hard. It's hard, but it's like anything in life. What are we going to turn away from the reality of any situation? You know, um, essentially it's, that's, that's called, um, bypassing, right? You know, where we just don't want to face the harsh realities. And, you know, what was interesting in, in the, when I went to the shelter, you know, just kind of observing people and as dark of a place as it can be, um, people are kinder and you see the light, you know, it, it just, there, there's a much greater humanity there and understanding there um, and just seeing all various people, right? Whether people that are there to rescue or foster a dog or the volunteers or even the people that work there, um, there is this sense of, hey, you know, it's not ideal, but we're doing the best that we can. And it speaks to a larger thing. That's how, that's how, that's how change happens, right? That's how we make the world a better place. Um, you know, pick any sort of social cause, it doesn't matter. Certainly there is no shortage of them in this day and age. But, you know, yeah, it sucks. But the only way through it is to, you know, do what we can, right? And, and if nothing else, the hopefulness is that there are other people out there that are similar to us, that are, that are doing what they can, you know, for, in this case, for the well-being of uh, dogs. So, yeah, you know, it, it's tough. We, of course, would love to do more. But if we can't do it all, then let's at least do a little bit of something and know that it amounts, it certainly makes an impact. I mean, you know, me fostering, her 
is making a big difference in her life, right? So, yeah, we all would love to have greater impact, but what is the impact that we can have? So, yeah. Um, the last uh, couple, of a couple of other things that I want to talk about is, um, as far as movie theaters, so I saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and I liked it. You can check out my review um, about it. But specifically, I don't want to talk about the movie. I want to talk about this format called ScreenX, which I'd never heard of before, but I was invited to, well, not invited, like um, there was an opportunity to go and see the movie in ScreenX. And what ScreenX is, is it's a movie theater, but then it also wraps the action scenes um, 270 degrees around you. So it extends the image onto the side walls, essentially. And it's very fascinating. Apparently it's been around for a while now, but I'd never heard of it. Certainly never seen one. Now, like think of it like IMAX, right? Where remember in The Dark Knight, there was, you know, the action scenes, you know, when they went to full IMAX, like you could see the aspect ratio change. This similar to that where, you know, during the dialogue scenes you're watching it, it's just on the regular screen and then all of a sudden you know an action scene comes and as i said it wraps around you and you get a peripheral view of kind of things that are happening and you know you can watch it it's pretty interesting but if anything it just kind of immerses you a little bit more into the scene so that's screen x and you know you can look it up i don't i don't know all the theaters there's only like 150, I want to say. I don't know if it's worldwide or just within the U.S., but not necessarily that many, but also not that few. And it's interesting, like, I don't necessarily know how to feel about it yet. Um, you know, with high frame rate, whether it be The Hobbit or, uh, I believe, Gemini Man, you know, those were sort of disorienting and like took me out of the movie. This didn't necessarily take me out of the movie, partly because I, I mean, I enjoyed the movie, but then it's weird to say like, did I enjoy the movie because I was so immersed in it? Um, I don't know, you know, so I don't have like a definitive opinion or preference about it, but I just wanted to kind of introduce it, see if you've heard of it, see what your thoughts were of it. You know, I don't know. You know, it's one of those things, like, for me, is it necessary? I don't think so. Because um, certainly it's one of those things that are, like, gimmicky. But it's not bad, you know? And, and if it gets other people into a movie theater, then perhaps. I don't know. Um, I said more information is needed to form a, a, a greater opinion. Uh the last thing as far as movies are concerned, um, so I'm a big advocate of listening to the Team Deacons podcast, especially as a filmmaker. I think it is such a gift to cinephiles everywhere. And what it is, is it's a, it's a podcast hosted by Roger and James Deacon, um, you know, their partners. And each week they interview all kinds of people in the film space, you know, from costume designers, production designers, editors, cinematographers, 
directors, VFX artists, like you name it, they've interviewed some of the best people. And recently they interviewed Matt Reeves, who, you know, more recently has done The Batman, some of the Apes movies, uh, things of that nature, right? But one of the movies he did was Cloverfield. And it was just a wild story for them to share, like, um, how that movie came to be. Like, talk about, like, chaos, lightning in a bottle, like, but at the same time, being confident without cockiness. Because essentially, J.J. Abrams pitched an idea. It was approved by the studio for just under $25 million. Because essentially how they pitched, pitched it was a Godzilla movie without a Godzilla-esque movie, but done for less than $25 million. And without reading the script, the studio approved it. Now, they didn't read the script because there was no script. It was just like an idea, an outline. And they were like, okay, great, but you need to get it you know, in the can in about 12 weeks because we want to start marketing it and we want to fit it into this slot theatrically. So they're like, oh, okay. So in about 12 weeks, they went from writing the script, filming the script, <laughs> and I mean, they talk about flying by the seat of your pants, you know, like they, they literally were doing rewrites as they were filming, coming up with stuff. Um, it's wild. You know, you, you really have to hear Matt Reeves talk about the story. But for me, what it essentially exemplified was that anything's really possible, <laughs> you know, like you can do it um, and figure it out. And make it work to your advantage. You know, uh, like all the, the, the tiny lessons are there, you know, like how to shoot on a micro budget, right? So if there's an action set piece, you know, because it's supposed to be like handheld, you know, at times it's like it won't necessarily make sense to point the camera at the, the action, you know, because someone might not do that. They might have just dropped the camera and then all you're seeing is like, you know, people's feet, but like the, through the sound design and so forth, what's happening is intense and it fills in the mental picture for you. And sure, other movies have utilized that and sometimes it's a cheat that's gratuitous isn't the right word, but let's just go with it. But in Cloverfield, it, it worked, right? So it was done very specifically and, and whatnot. So... Yeah, if you're a filmmaker, I, a, I encourage you to listen to basically every Team Deacons podcast. But in particular, I don't know, this one recently just stood out to me um, as far as inspiration. Um, so, yeah, that's that. That's all I got for you today. Um, you know, thank you as always for taking the time to tune in. It truly does mean a lot to me, as I hope it does to you, uh, you know. Whatever questions you may have or thoughts of your own, please comment down below or hit me up on social media. I would love to hear from you. And it could be about anything I've talked about or it could be about stuff you'd like me to talk about or you know, stuff you have questions on, by all means. And if you appreciate what I do and would love to support me, uh, you can check out my Patreon page, patreon.com slash There's just one tier. Um, and yes, it's a way to support me. But in return... It's a way for me to connect um, with you on a more direct level and be able to help you out. 
you know, with whatever you might have going on uh, creatively or otherwise. So, you know, take advantage if that's something you're interested in. I appreciate you and hope to see you next time.